Great, let's get our Bibles out, open to Esther chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, just grab that pew Bible in front of you, open to 574, page 574. The little book of Esther is, uh, if you can just open right in the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms, back up to the left, and go past Job, you'll find Esther. Today we will finish our study of Esther. Now, I could take a few moments and remind you or talk to you about how good God has been to us through the book of Esther, but I don't feel that I need to do that because I feel this morning God will show you how good He's been to us through the book of Esther. So if you just pay attention to the things that have occurred you will find just the remarkable reality that the God of the Bible, who as we have seen through this book, has ordered himself in the midst of all these seemingly insignificant and random details, has done just that for us. Amazing. Let's pray and then we'll study. Father, we thank you for you. And Lord, the only perfect things in this room are your spirit and your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll use an imperfect man to communicate to your imperfect people that we might Respond to the hearing of your good and gracious word. Lord, that we might see this morning with eyes unbound the love that you have for us and the care that you have taken with us through the study of Esther. And Lord, that we might shudder at the reality that you have not only given us your word, but you have worked your word. You have revealed yourself as the God of Esther right here to us, to these people. Not because we deserve it, but because you are glorious and mighty and wonderful. So we ask that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that will be spoken this morning. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just a quick refresher. The story of Esther uh, takes place when a time, uh, during a time when God's people are refugees. They find themselves uh, displaced in the Persian Empire. It's a land ruled by a very powerful, autonomous, dominant king who abuses not only his power but the people around him. He comes to the place where he needs to find a new queen. And so through this miraculous set of events, an orphan girl named Esther winds up the queen of the Persian Empire, which is the most powerful nation on earth, the 
the greatest, most vast empire up to this time in human history. But then we find out that Esther is a Jew. Nobody knows that except for her and her cousin Mordecai, who's also a Jew, who adopted her and raised her. And these small details give us some insight into the pressure that a, a, an inhabitant of the Persian Empire would be under to assimilate into the culture, that they would live incognito or concealing their true identity. Well, a man named Haman becomes the second most powerful man in the world as he's appointed by the king to sort of take over all the kingly duties. He's a massively wealthy man who inherits incredible power and has tremendous influence throughout the kingdom. But what's telling about Haman more than anything else is that he has a deep-rooted, long-standing hatred for the Jews. So he gets the king to pass a law declaring the slaughter of the 15 or so million Jews that are inhabitants of Persia. They would all be executed on one particular day, a day that was chosen by the rolling of the dice or casting of the lots. But through a great reversal, what we've seen over the last few weeks is that God uses Esther and Mordecai to not only embrace their true identity as Jews, but to save his people. And they wind up passing a law that allows for the Jews to defend themselves against their threat. Mordecai winds up in the position that was once held by Haman. Haman winds up hanging from the gallows. And as we left off in chapter 8, God's people were celebrating and filled with joy at the deliverance that they had received from their God, from the hands of Haman and those who sought to do them harm. And so it shouldn't be a big surprise. We serve a God of covenant, a God who makes covenants with his people. He promises to his people, and he always upholds his promise. And he tells us throughout Scripture that he will be our God and that we will be his people. And it doesn't matter how far away his children get from him. It doesn't matter how big of a mess his kids have gotten themselves in. It doesn't matter even if someone is plotting to do great evil against his children. God is a father who loves his kids, and he will hunt down every single one of them and accomplish his purpose in their life. He will love them and serve them and save them and protect them because they're his children. And so Esther's a story of the good father of Scripture. That's really what it is. And, and how he loves a disobedient people. You know, he has many children at this time. 
But the obedient children are back in Jerusalem with Ezra and Nehemiah. It's the disobedient children that we encounter in the, in the book of Esther. And yet, it's these children who are doing things they ought not do and are in a place they ought not be that he works this great work through. And that should be very encouraging to us. So in moments in life where we find ourselves wondering, God, where are you? Are you near? Do you hear me? Have you forgotten me? How could this work out? How could this be? What shall I do? We need to remember and think biblically that the God of Scripture is here. He's with us because He promises to never leave us or forsake us. And that our faith is the faith that trusts in His presence. No matter where we find ourselves. God's a God who doesn't necessarily change our circumstances. But He walks with us through them. So, Esther chapter 9 verse 1. The Bible says, Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar... On the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On that day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, key phrase, the opposite occurred. The tables were turned in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Now, I, I just want to pause here for a moment. It seems a little anticlimactic, does it not? Here for eight chapters, we've seen this intense sort of plot development in this story and all of these cliffhangers that this story leaves us on. And yet we get to chapter 9, sort of the culmination of all of this, and then the events are just read off to us as if we're sort of reading from a history book. But if you think about it, it's really exactly the way it ought to be. This is consistent with the theology of Esther, and here's why. Because the outcome in this story has never been in jeopardy. We as the readers have sort of ebbed and flowed with all the events and all the circumstances that have gone on, but to the God who's authoring this, it's always been a foregone conclusion that he would do exactly as he determined and purposed to do. So we must remember that God will never allow His covenant promises to go unfulfilled. He will never allow that to happen. And so it would make sense that we would get to this place and it would be conveyed to us in this way because He's a promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping God. And He'll do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to make sure that His redemptive purposes are accomplished for the good of His people and for the glory of His name. So if you have your listening guide, you can pull that out. Because right here would be a good place I could stop. We could pause here and could prompt a sermon about the sovereignty and goodness of God. But that's a talk for another day. But I could. We could just go right off. But we've talked a lot about that, and we'll talk more about that in the future. But it's a sermon for another day. Verse 2. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought to harm. 
And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon the people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, and then we have the list of the ten names of the sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed them. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Now, several things become apparent from these verses. First of all, you would think that the combination of things going on here, the, the, the public spectacle of Haman's demise and his hanging on this 70-foot-tall stake before everyone to see, you know, his body hanging out there and the revelation that the queen is now a Jew, everyone in the kingdom now knew that, and the rise of the fame and power of Mordecai, you would think that all of these things put together would have thwarted anyone from trying to bring harm on the Jews. But it should remind us of something very important, and that is that there has always been and will always be the presence of those who seek to harm God's people. It's not only Israel that is always, forever, under the pressure of its enemies, but all of God's people as well, which we could pause here. It could prompt a sermon about how we should not be surprised when faithful living brings persecution. Because the Bible teaches in multiple ways and in multiple places that we should expect persecution. That if we are not being persecuted, according to Jesus, we should then examine our lives and consider the ways in which we're not living faithfully. Because to live faithfully is to guarantee, according to the Bible, persecution. Amen? Yes. Now, the second thing we would learn is that this deep, abiding hatred for the Jews that was inside of Haman, was passed on to his ten sons. Because as we read the list of their names, and, well, as you read them, I thought to myself, someone will say, why didn't you read the names? I'm going to say, why didn't you name your kids that? <laughs> Amen. Right on. Look, it's little Vesageza. I don't even know. I don't, what does that even mean? We don't even know. All right. So all of his sons follow in his footsteps, which is another moment where we could stop. It could prompt a whole sermon about how generational, the generational curse of sin and how the sins of the father are passed down to the next generation and the generation to come. As in light of all of these things that you would think would deter someone from trying to harm the Jews, 
all ten of his sons wind up dead because they follow in the footsteps of their father. But that's a sermon for another day. Verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 5,000 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you, he says. And what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther says to the king, verse 13, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they were hanged, Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. They did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and had rest from their enemies. And killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Now, notice three times is repeated the phrase, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Clearly, what the Bible's doing here is pointing out the fact that this battle was not about personal gain. Like I told you last week, the edict that Mordecai wrote to to allow the Jews to defend themselves was very much a defensive edict. It was not offensive. It was just standing in opposition to exactly what Haman had written against them. But it does seem a little shady, don't you think, that after everything is accomplished, Esther requests a second day. A lot of people have read this passage and tried to make it seem that Esther here is being bloodthirsty in some way, that that they've won the victory on the first day, but somehow it wasn't enough, and she's not satisfied. She wants more time for killing. But that's not the case at all. If you examine this closely, what you'll find is that the Jews not only did what was permitted only by Mordecai's edict, which was only to neutralize the attacks against them, but we have to look deeper, deeper into the conflict of this story and how its development stretches all the way back to the book of Genesis. Remember when we were introduced to Mordecai for the first time in chapter 2? We find out that he's a descendant of King Saul. And then we're introduced to Haman in chapter 3. And we find out that he's a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. And remember who the Amalekites were? They were the very first people to attack and destroy God's newly formed People, you know, try to destroy them. And back in Deuteronomy 25, God commanded Israel that once they had settled in the promised land, they would take care of the Amalekites. And so 
the time finally came to deal with the Amalekites, and Saul was the king. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have a very famous passage. Really, it's the demise of King Saul where he was commanded not to spare the sword and not to take any of the plunder. And he did exactly the opposite. He spared King Agag and he took all the plunder. And rather than annihilating them, he let them live. And so there's been this ongoing conflict all these generations later because of that decision the Jews are once again being attacked by the people of Agag which could prompt a sermon about the lasting consequences of not declaring war on sin that when we just play around with sin when we are are not serious about cleansing our lives from unrepentant sin, when we just try to clean things up or sweep things under the rug, we don't ensure that they won't come back and create future problems in our life because we don't take the necessary steps to eradicate them from our lives. These are the things that happen, but that would be a talk for another day. Esther doesn't request a second day. You notice for the entire kingdom, only for the capital city of Shushan, only. And so it's, it's telling you something. It appears that there in the city, there's still pockets of great hostility. And why would that be? Well, I think that the obvious correlation here is that the ten sons of Haman, remember now, they've had ten months Ten months have passed for these ten young men to stir up trouble against the Jews and try to avenge the death of their father. And so, of course, Haman was a very prominent person. And so these ten young men probably had lots of connections. And so they worked very diligently and very hard to bring hatred towards the Jews to the forefront of people's consciousness. And Esther requests what is necessary for the Jews to achieve complete victory, to deal with this problem once and for all. And so on the second day, she has these ten sons hanged on the gallows. It's a sign of completion. Now remember, we had a big conversation back in chapter 5 about identity. And it all stemmed from this moment where Haman had been invited to the second banquet by the king and the queen. And he went home and he got around his wife and his friends and he began to brag and, and, and talk, speak in prideful terms about all the things that he had accomplished. And there were three things in particular that he spoke of. They were his wealth, his high position, and his son's. Well, his wealth has been given to Esther. His high position has been given to Mordecai. The only thing that hadn't been fully and finally dealt with was his ten sons. And so the very things that he was basing his identity on, remember I said that our idols become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there you have it in Scripture. The very things that he was idolizing 
were the very things that led to his demise. And it is just, again, that the, the illustration of these ten sons hanging from the gallows is, is like a, an emphatic exclamation point of this great reversal that God has orchestrated. So with this, the tables have been completely turned. Now, we could stop here and it could prompt a sermon about the God of reversal. Who makes the first last and the last first. The God who establishes an economy that is very different from the economy in which we live in. It's very different from the economy in which we deal with one another in. We, we live in a world where we, you know, if you scratch my back, I scratch your back. We live in a world where the better we perform, the more we're rewarded. But God establishes an economy in his kingdom that is opposite. It's an economy where you love your enemy. And it's those who are last who serve that are first. And those who think they're first become last. And everything is turned upside down. But that would be a talk for another day. We'll keep reading verse 17. So this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th. And on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy and sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. You see... With God, as in life, with victory ought to come celebration. And what we see here is God drawing to the forefront this necessity for us to celebrate the things that He has accomplished on our behalf. And it will cause us to see our great propensity to not do so. Look at verse 23. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is, the lot or dice, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. 
Therefore, because of all the words of this letter that they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instruction and according to the prescribed time. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. That these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews. And that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Purim. So you remember that in Esther chapter 3 verse 7, it was the way that Haman determined the day on which the Jews would all be executed by the rolling of the dice, the poor. That's what they called it. The lot, where we get our word lottery. So by what he thought or deemed as chance. So now we have the, the feast of Purim. So it's like the word poor, not rich, poor, im, Purim. And this celebration is a declaration that our destiny as God's people is not in the roll of the dice, but in the hand of the living God. A God who never stops working through his people and his unseen hand of providence to bring about his purposes. Now, what a great way to end this story. With the inauguration of an annual block party, if you will, to commemorate God's deliverance. Wonderful. But you notice that chapter 9, being the longest chapter in the book of Esther, is then followed by the last and final chapter, chapter 10, which is by far the shortest, only three verses. And look at how the book comes to a close. Chapter 10, verse 1. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of his greatness, the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Hmm. So throughout this story, we've seen this continual sequence, the sequence of great reversal where something bad has been turned to something good, right? But then at the end of the book, we see the opposite scenario, which is crazy because when we write a story or tell a story, we expect the story to build to the end, to this big climax to where, you know, there's some happily ever after moment. And yet here we see that we, we, we seem to almost end on a, a downer. It's like the opposite of all of that. But I want to draw your attention to a few things. Remember when Esther was named queen? 
And what might have escaped your attention was that one of the things that happened in that moment was there was a remission of taxes as a celebration of the fact that Esther had become queen. And as the story of Esther comes to an end, we find the king imposing taxes on all the land. Now, as God's people are celebrating his great work of deliverance among them, the wicked, self-centered, arrogant king, the same king we met in chapter 1, is still taking from others in order to accommodate his lavish lifestyle. Now, things have adjusted somewhat. Mordecai is second in command, and he is seeking the well-being of the people. But here's what I want you to think about. Here we are this morning, citizens of the modern Persian Empire. An empire that constantly pushes us toward wickedness. Where self-centered is expected. People who are arrogant are celebrated. And we as God's people are not in the positions of prominence. Notice the only one who is in a position of power seeking the well-being of people is Mordecai, but he's second in command. That all of these things have happened. God has done all of these remarkable and amazing things, and yet the evil, wicked king is still on the throne of the empire. We're not the ones today in prominence, are we? No, we're not the ones who are on television every night. But who are we? We're the people working mostly unseen, shining the light of the gospel as brightly as we can, but one relationship at a time, one divine appointment at a time. In the midst of the empire in which we live, everything we do, everyone we meet, is an opportunity for us. An opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. An opportunity to share the hope of the gospel. An opportunity to see people set free, born again to a new and eternal life. We serve a God who always keeps His promises. And a God who promises, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Which could prompt a sermon about if you're not a fisher of men, you're probably 
following someone else. See, God could have relieved, released his people from Persia any way he wanted to. He could have, with the snap of his fingers, eliminated and annihilated the king or all the Persians or any combination thereof he wanted to. But that's not the way God works. God most often works through his people. Covertly. Drawing us to a place of obedience and devotion to Him. Working amongst and within a culture of assimilation and worldliness. And so when He calls us, He calls us to certain purposes. And one of those purposes is that we would be fishers of men. But yet rarely do we look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, am I a fisher of men? And if I'm not, what makes me think I'm following the God of the Bible? If I have somehow moved away from the reality that Every relationship I build, every person that I meet, every place that I go is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to impact the people who cross paths with me. That there's a God, a God who loves them, a God who created them, a God who knows them. And that in the midst of this empire in which we live... We're not the people of fame, but we are the people of freedom. We're not the people of power, but we are the people of promise. And we may not be the people of esteem, but make no mistake about it, we are the people of eternity. Now, why is this so important? I think because we don't celebrate as we ought. I think the book of Esther is calling us to something that we would most oftentimes miss. Think about it. Here we are, swimming in a sea that has a very powerful current that is pulling everyone within it toward assimilation. And if we're honest, we would admit that most churchgoers today are really living as Neo-Persians. When we began this series, I said that Christians consume as much mass media as unbelievers. 
the divorce rate among professing Christians is the same as non-Christians. Professing Christians are just as likely to be addicted to pornography or drugs or anything else and just as consumeristic and material-driven. You see, I believe that's why God seems to be hidden throughout Esther's story. Is because although he's right there, nobody seems to see him. And the reason is because we're not looking. We're not looking. Instead, we find ourselves more often than not looking for a different God, looking for a God who will come and change our circumstances, not a God who transforms our nature through our circumstances. We want a God to fix our problems, not a God to walk with us through our problems. We want a God to make things easy. Not a God who's going to build our faith through trial. It's a message we desperately need to hear. God's not hidden. We're just not looking. The good news is is that The whole story centers around Esther and Mordecai who were two deeply compromised, assimilated Persians who once they awoke to their Jewish identity and took bold steps on behalf of the God who loves them and created them, what happens? Their whole story turns around. And it's a reminder to us that there's not one of us that has gone too far to be written out of the story of God. That all of us have an opportunity to turn and walk back toward God. Think about it. The book doesn't end with a great victory in battle. It ends with the inauguration of Purim. A meal, a celebration that reminds us that no matter how dark things get, there's always reason to hope. The book of Esther is calling us to spiritual awakening. But we must remember that spiritual awakening is not the end in and of itself. That what follows our awakening matters to God as well. That identifying as one of God's people It's it's not just about a decision. It's a way of life that God has called us to 
distinction that we ought to be visually distinct, that we ought to be behaviorally distinct, that we ought to be practically distinct as we live in this empire. That is to our shame. That we're so oftentimes not seen as anything different than those around us. God's not hidden. We're just not looking. All of the things that He has taught us and shown us through the study of this book all sort of come crashing down around us at the reality that to some degree we all identify with Esther and Mordecai. Which means we have work to do. And that we will need moments of remembrance that are built into the rhythm of our life that will prevent us from drifting back to where we once were. That if we're not careful, if we don't do things intentionally and specifically to remind ourselves of who we are and of whom we belong, then we'll over time, lose even our identity. And also to remind us that sin is always crouching at the door, is it not? It's always waiting. So here we have the book of Esther ending with a meal. And we have our time together in the book of Esther ending with a meal. And I know it looks like uh, I'm super smart and on top of things to work things out in just such a way that it would happen just like that. And I'm glad that you believe that. Keep believing. It's good. But something else dawned on me this week. As I was wrapping up this study of Esther, I, I thought to myself, well, I want to know as much as I can about Purim. So I started just reading about the celebration and all that it consists of. And, and then I found out when Purim is in 2019. 
It's this Wednesday. And I just knew in that moment that what God was calling us to do was celebrate Purim. And so today we'll end with a meal and then Wednesday we'll all come into this room right here. And we'll have a celebration with all the Jews around the world. And we'll celebrate the deliverance of our God, the God of the Bible. And it'll be a wonderful, fantastic, and very unique time because it surely has never happened to you before and probably will never happen again. But it will this Wednesday. And so we'll do that together. So what is this whole message about? I think this, more than anything else, is a message about the way back home. It's a message about how to come home. And as we think about how we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper... And how the Lord's Supper is the celebration of the greatest reversal of all times, right? Yes. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. There is no greater reversal than that. And Esther and the Lord's Supper, they're like a road map to life with God. They are, they're in a sense... Maps that help us find our way back home. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Reminding us what's been done on our behalf. Reminding us who we truly are and what really matters that we might come home. Both Purim and the Lord's Supper, they... They tell the story of a group of people that are finding their way back home through a darkened world, right? When all hope seems to be lost and God seems to at times be silent. And yet, through it all, through Him, we can find the courage to be a faithful witness. And so... By remembering, we're also accomplishing something that the generations to follow might not fall into the same trap or pit. That it's important to God that we remember and that we celebrate. And it's true, is it not, that the story of the church is really about storytelling. I mean, whether it be Christmas or here in a few weeks, Easter, whether it be Passover or Purim, it's storytelling, is it not? It's the remembering of the stories of the faithfulness of God. 
And all these stories are here to remind us, not just of the story, but of the God of the story. The God behind the story, the God in the story, and the God who's writing our story. And so when it seems like evil's winning and God is silent and hope is lost, we need to be reminded that the God of salvation is here. We need these moments, moments of remembrance, moments to call us home, moments to awaken us, to shake us out of our assimilated lives, to call us back to a way of life that's distinct and bold and biblical. So what we need to do as God's people is be honest. We need to be honest. We need to be honest about the things that shape us, the things that that captivate us. And I think maybe more than anything else in light of the book of Esther, the things we celebrate. The things that you get all jazzed up about. The things that you yell and scream and dance and sing about. That have no eternal value whatsoever. That so much of our lives get wrapped up in things that are meaningless. And yet what matters most is right before our eyes. But if we're not looking... We don't see them. We need to be awakened. And say, God, we have many things to celebrate and many things to be joyful about. Because we too live in the greatest, most powerful, most affluent empire that has ever existed on the face of the earth. But with it comes great danger. And we need to learn from Esther and Mordecai. That God's a good God. He's a good Father. And even amongst the disobedient children... His heart and desire is to work and to move and to draw and to use. So as all the the good children are back in Jerusalem with Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebels... The Neo-Persians. The cultural gurus. The ones swept up. In the well, but it's my job. It's my hobby. It's my joy. It's my choice. Is it? 
is it? So let's stand and bow our heads and come to this meal with a heart filled with the weight and the gravity of what this moment represents and an understanding that God calls us as his people to this meal. But he doesn't just call us to it in any way that we might feel like coming. He calls us in a very specific way to come with hearts that are open to him, repentant of our sin, and grateful, grateful beyond measure for his deliverance. That we were once a people lost in darkness, swept up by the current of the world, but he intervened and didn't call us to defend ourselves, but defended us with his own son. The shed blood and broken body of his son. So let's just be honest with God. Let's not be okay with not being where we ought to be. It's not okay. Find your way home. Whatever your way home is, find it home this morning. Make things right with him. He's a good father. He wants to use you. I don't know any other place in Scripture that would make that more obvious.